We're going to kick off in a minute. If uh, you guys want to draw your conversations to a close. Nick and Ellen, thanks for leading us so well so far. So we're going to be carrying on our series of Daniel. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 today. Um, and before, before we kick off, I, let's just shut our eyes. Let's just, I guess, give the, the remaining what, hour or so to God. So, Father, I just, I just pray that uh, you'll be with me as I speak. I pray that it will be your words, not my words, Lord. Uh, and I just pray perhaps you'll uh, help us be receptive to what you want to say to us this morning, Lord. Yeah, Father, um, just pray that you'll bless everyone here and you'll bless this time that we've got together. Amen. So, so far we've had, I guess, quite an insight into this character, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Pete, last week, kind of helped us drill into that a bit further. He's the king of Babylon. He's clearly a tyrant. He's a great king, though, who, who has accomplished great things. But also, he's a, interestingly, he's, he's a king that has had glimpses of God through Daniel, through Daniel's friends. But you know, up until now, despite all of those glimpses, he hasn't really done any more than just acknowledge that Daniel's got a God that seems to do quite powerful things. And he doesn't really do any more than that versus all the Babylonian gods that Nebuchadnezzar worships. But he's also built this really good relationship with Daniel. And I, and I think we can see, I guess, over the last three chapters, the building up of a real mutual respect between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, despite, the, I suppose, the differences in their relative uh, positions in society. So today we're going to look at chapter 4. It's actually written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it's split into three parts, which I've called the proud, the fallen, and the restored. So in part one, as the proud, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his power, how he perceives himself and how he's full of pride. We're going to see a pattern of behavior that we see echoed in today's society. And I challenge you as well, we'll probably see it in ourselves. For us to be citizens of heaven and engage effectively as citizens on earth, I think this is something really important that we mustn't dismiss. It's got to be on our radar, and actually, we need to do something about it. In The Fallen, we're going to see about Nebuchadnezzar's dramatic fall, his fall from power, and how God deals with him. And then finally, in The Restored, we're going to see how Nebuchadnezzar deals with his pride, what advice Daniel gives him, and also what we can learn from Jesus on how we can be restored from where we might have fallen. So, interestingly, Daniel 4 kicks off with some worship from Nebuchadnezzar, which seems a bit out of character, but he really glorifies God. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Something big has happened between chapter 3 and chapter 4. When you think that in chapter 3, Daniel's three friends were thrown into a fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar saw them walking with 
one extra person amidst the flames, and the flames didn't touch them, and they come out unscathed. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't bow down and worship God at that point. So something really substantial has happened after that for Nebuchadnezzar to turn around and say these things about God. So let's begin with part one, looking at the proud. So this is a long passage. What I'm going to show on the screen is the abridged version, and uh, that's what I'm going to read. So if you want to follow it in your Bibles, don't be surprised if I skip a few bits, um, but that's purely in the interest of time. So starting at verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. And I told him the dream, saying, I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the whole ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from it and the birds from its branches. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded... uh, Sorry, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 
And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. We're starting to understand more and more about Nebuchadnezzar. We, he's certainly a powerful man. He's headstrong. He's dominant. As Pete said last week, having absolute power and this dominating personality must have been a really terrifying combination. And we see from Daniel's interpretation that we've just read that Nebuchadnezzar, he oversees this vast kingdom. But not just that it was huge. It was good. It provided for all that lived there. And it was beautiful. But then God sends this dire warning that Nebuchadnezzar needs to turn from his proud ways. Now, we don't often talk about pride, do we? I want us to think today about what pride means and then to see perhaps what others and the Bible say about it. And as we'll see, there's something important here that I'd argue all too often we sort of skip over it and we don't really address. See, when we do use the word pride, it's often with really positive connotations. We can be proud of getting a job, proud of getting a promotion at work, perhaps proud of a child passing their exams, proud of getting a personal best in a race or buying a house for the first time. The dictionary, though, defines pride as a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated, or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. So I'd like just to pause for a moment. I'd like you to have a think and reflect on what your proudest moment has been or something that you are particularly proud of. For me, two things came to mind. I'm proud of my family, and I'm proud of doing well at work. I expect that many of you who've come up with something have chosen a happy moment, something that evokes feelings of deep satisfaction, makes you smile. But that got me thinking, doesn't this create a contradiction? On the one hand, we see in chapter 4, God warning Nebuchadnezzar about his pride. But on the other hand, we're talking about feelings that we feel are really positive in our lives. And so let's be clear, I don't think that those positive feelings are wrong. Feeling deeply satisfied when there's an outcome that's dear to you is only natural. But I think we have to realize that's only one side of pride. You know, there's this dividing line, there's a dark side as well that Nebuchadnezzar expresses only too clearly in his life and in the events that have happened to him. Now, as well as what we see written in Daniel, there are some powerful comments written by some theologians about pride. I think it's just helpful to increase our understanding about what it really means. On the screen, you can see John Stott, and he has said, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. And also, pride is pride. It is itself the essence of all sin. C.S. Lewis, 
who wrote in Mere Christianity, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. If we turn to the Bible, there's loads of verses about pride. I've just put a handful up here, and I'm not going to read them all out, but I'll, I'll touch on a couple. So James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We've got the famous phrase, actually I didn't realize until I was doing this, that it comes from the Bible in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There's loads of nuggets in, of wisdom throughout Proverbs, but one more just to touch on is Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Isn't that just really sobering? Just as I was writing this and putting it together and praying about it, I felt somewhat overawed at the scale of what the Bible and some of these theologians say about pride. And perhaps we don't take this seriously enough. You know, C.S. Lewis's quote that pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Solomon in Proverbs saying everyone who is arrogant in heart, who is proud, is an abomination to the Lord. That's massive. That should be ringing alarm bells all around us. We need to take it seriously. And we see the impact of pride throughout history, don't we? We see perhaps tales of the proud and also tales of how they've fallen. You look further in the Bible, sorry, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it talks about the story of Uzziah. And he became king, he believed in God, and as long as he sought God, he prospered. And he acquired great wealth, he acquired great strength, but he grew proud to his destruction. We've got Nebuchadnezzar, we see in chapter 4 how his pride came to a big fall. And there are many others. And throughout history, and I'd say today as well, we live under leaders who are proud. Quiz for you. I've got two quotes here. I'm going to read them out. I've got two people. I want you to guess who they are. I think one's easy, one's quite hard. Uh, Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been my mental stability and being, like, really smart. I went from very successful businessman to top TV star to dot, dot, dot. I think that would qualify as not smart, but genius, and a very stable genius at that. Second quote, I wasn't lucky, I deserved it. So the first one, who knows who that is? Donald Trump. Trump. Second one. You know, you're not allowed. <laughs> You've seen the next slide. I'll give you a clue. Uh, British? Past Prime Minister, not Churchill. Margaret Thatcher. We speak about the pride of national leaders. I guess we philosophize, perhaps, about how historic leaders have overstepped the mark. It's easy to judge them, I think, when we... we sit in our seats or our comfy sofas at home. But we can talk about how their pride became their downfall. And we see how easy it is for pride to increase as individuals become increasingly successful, 
powerful, more recognized for their achievements. Because their focus on God decreases, but their focus on themselves increases. This is the dangerous pattern of increased success leading to increased power to a higher sense of self-righteousness, and I'd say perhaps a godless sense of self-confidence. I think there are questions we need to think through clearly about what does it mean to live in a proud society, to work for a proud boss, perhaps to have friends who are proud. And I think I'm actually not going to dwell on that too much today. I think I'd encourage you to listen to Pete's sermon last week about living as uncompromising Christians. And to perhaps listen to that sermon with uh, a view on well, what does it mean to be proud? What does it mean to actually live as a Christian, as a citizen of heaven, in a proud society? For today, though, I want to focus on what does being proud mean for you and for me. I think we need to understand a bit more about pride so we can recognize when we cross that line, perhaps to the dark side, and when God becomes a reduced influence in our lives and we become bigger. So, pride says, my will be done. In Philippians 2, verse 3, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Equally, everything that Nebuchadnezzar did was clearly about asserting his own dominance, asserting his own will. So pride says, my will be done. This is doing what we want to do for our own personal gain. We can be self-righteous, aiming to glorify ourselves through the things that we do. And where are we trying to get glory for ourselves in our lives? Pride also says, I deserve this. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar talks about what I have built. In verse 22, he claims that his dominion extends to the ends of the earth. I think within this, we see an attitude that kind of says throughout, it's Nebuchadnezzar saying, believing, I deserve all of this. I've achieved great things, and my achievements are rightfully mine. So in our lives, what is it that we think we deserve? Pride also says, I am good. I'm better than the rest. In Jeremiah 9, verse 23, it says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the rich man boast in his riches. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar boast repeatedly about his majesty. Boasting to others is a sign of pride. Interestingly, and closer to home, not surprisingly, we've got politicians vying for power. Um, I was reading in the newspaper last week, actually, so Jonathan Dimbleby, for those that don't know, he's for decades been a current affairs presenter, and he, he stepped down last week. And his sort of speech was in the paper. And one of the things that he said was, the impact of social media has coarsened public discourse. Which I thought was really interesting. It made me wonder that, well, actually, perhaps the ability and the willingness to put people down is really just a way of achieving an increase in your own personal standing. To make someone look worse so that you can make yourself look better and to glorify yourself. I think it's quite easy to perhaps distance ourselves from what we see in the media, from what we see written about politicians. But I think also there is a challenge there. Do we have an inclination to make ourselves look good? Do we try and tailor social media, perhaps, to give that impression to others? 
Last but not least, and you'll have to forgive me for this one because I have diverted from the biblical text, but I, I think the essence of this is very much throughout what we have read. And that is that pride says, I am not proud. I was very aware as I was writing this that I can't really stand up and talk about pride without actually spending some time just reflecting on my life. And actually, my first reaction as I was pulling a lot of this together was, yeah, I don't think I'm particularly proud. But as I dug past that first impression, I think absolutely, I had to come to the conclusion that yes, I am proud in many parts of my life. If we go back to that example, when we all thought of something we were proud about, just to focus on, on my example, I was proud of doing well at work. And as part of that, I've got an inclination actually at work that I think I can do better than other people. I want to have that control to not risk perhaps other people failing or messing up. I'd say I'm not overtly glory seeking at all, but I think underlying that, there can be at times a thought process that kind of goes, oh, I should do that piece of work because I'll do a better job. I'm good at doing that. And then take my other example. Uh, I love my family. I genuinely think that they're great. And whilst my pride is partly about being pleased for them, I had to question, is there a part which is related perhaps to how others perceive me? And ultimately, it's just about how I feel about myself. Now, I want to be considered a good dad. I want to be able to demonstrate that we have largely well-behaved children. I want to be seen to have a good, loving, solid relationship with Kate. And all of these things are good. But how am I doing in trying to balance out taking the glory in those things for myself with actually giving the glory to God? The challenge to me, and I say those of us whose reaction to those first three signs of pride is, well, oh, it doesn't apply to me, I'm not proud, is to look under the covers. I suspect we've all got areas in our own lives where we've got, just like Nebuchadnezzar did, his own dominion that we look over. What's your dominion? And are there signs perhaps where you're self-righteous rather than right before God? So we come to part two, the fallen. The Bible verses that we read earlier, they warn us that there are serious consequences of pride. Daniel 4 gives us a real example of this. Now, I don't know if you noticed, when we read chapter 4, there was one phrase that was repeated three times. Which all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture we need to take in and understand it. But actually, when something's repeated three times in one chapter, I think it's reasonable to say that that's probably quite important. So that verse is in 17, it's in verse 25, and it's in verse 32. And they've all got a slight variant of this message. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. Here, God's warning us about the real fallibility of pride. Ultimately, it's he who rules, it's not us. God first warns Nebuchadnezzar that he is going to be stripped of everything, his dignity, his power, his possessions. All of it will be gone. And it's not a baseless threat. We see that, though, despite having the opportunity, Nebuchadnezzar still continues to glorify himself. And then in one fell swoop, that dream becomes a reality. He had a long way to fall, and he fell hard. So if we're glorifying ourselves for what we've achieved, we can lose it in the blink of an eye. 
And if our achievements are what give us our self-worth, and those achievements are taken away from us, what does that mean for our own sense of value? We run the risk of becoming worthless, don't we, in our own eyes. But God, God's a God of grace. He gave Nebuchadnezzar a warning and an opportunity to change his ways. So we need to heed that warning too. We need to address the pride in our lives before it becomes a problem, before it causes hurt to us and to others. We might not have our own cities to gaze over, but if we look in our hearts, are there parts of our life that we look over with pride that we consider to glorify ourselves? We need to ask ourselves, where have we fallen and what do we need to do to pick ourselves up? Hopefully we've got a better, more biblical understanding now of what pride is, what the consequences of pride are. And thankfully with God, there there is always hope and forgiveness and restoration. Which brings us on to part three, the restored. Daniel gave clear instructions to Nebuchadnezzar on how to be restored after he interprets the dream, and that's in verse 27. And Daniel says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So simply put, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar to do two things. Stop sinning and to do what's right. Nebuchadnezzar needs to break from his past and to start to put others first. He needs to put himself at the back of the queue with God in front, then other people, and only then himself. God's warning goes unheeded, as we've seen. But from verse 34, we see a great example of God's everlasting grace and mercy. And it goes, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We finally see Nebuchadnezzar change his attitude. Perhaps for the first time in his life, when he's at rock bottom, he lifts his eyes to heaven and gives glory to God. He acknowledges God's will and his providence. And it's at this point that God forgives him. And we see Nebuchadnezzar restored. His power and his riches are returned to him. So we see actually that that power and those riches aren't necessarily bad in itself. It's how we hold on to them in our hearts. So we really need to take the things we're holding on to in our hearts. And we need to give glory to God. We've got to take those things that we're proud of. We've got to stop using them to shine a light on ourselves and use them to shine a light on God. And we can learn a lot, I think, about from looking at how Jesus responds to some of the examples of pride that we've seen. Probably the most succinct verses on this that we can look at are in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, which I'll paraphrase. But basically, uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector go into the temple. 
And we hear the Pharisee praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But then you get the tax collector. He's standing at the back. He's beating his breast. And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And a few verses later, Jesus talks about a rich ruler who talks to Jesus. And this ruler says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, is twofold, really. Firstly, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then at the end, he says one thing, Jesus says to this ruler, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. If we look back at our signs of pride, for each one, I think Jesus has shown us the alternative. Where we are focused on my will be done, Jesus says in Luke 18, to follow him. Close enough. And in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to say, your will be done. Equally, if we feel that we're deserving, then we need to listen to Jesus as he tells us to be prepared to give up what we have, to serve the poor, and to humble ourselves. If we catch ourselves thinking, I am good, Jesus clearly says, no one is good except God alone. We might consider ourselves good, but if we compare ourselves to God, we'll always fall short. However, we have all been shown grace and mercy, haven't we, by God, through Jesus' death and through his resurrection, such that we are made righteous and can know God's goodness ourselves. And finally, do you, like me, fall into the I'm not proud category? And just as Jesus challenged the rich ruler about what he lacked, perhaps ask yourself this. Would you be prepared to give up everything you have on earth, everything, to focus only on Jesus and follow him? So how do we bring all this together? If I lost you about 10 minutes ago, focus on these two final points. Firstly, we've got to acknowledge where the pride is in our lives. Search your hearts. Let's say ask other people. We've got to keep searching them as well. It's not a one-off activity. I think it's something that we've got to put at the front and centre of our lives, and we've got to keep asking ourselves, where might pride be in our lives? And don't fall into that I'm not proud trap. It's as simple as if you haven't glorified God in it, then it's pride. Secondly, follow the pattern of Jesus. Be righteous and not self-righteous. God is good and in everything we need to give glory to God. We should start with the small things. We should create a daily habit of being thankful to God in everything that you do. In humility, remember, you've got so much worth. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one of us is fantastic in the eyes of God and God loves us. We've got to take that love. Let's take all the great things that we have and say thank you to God for them and acknowledge that it's well and truly
given by God. Just as we close, perhaps if the band could, could come up, I'd like us to respond today by, by finishing with a time of worship, quite simply. Now, after all, kind of what is true worship if it's actually stopping ourselves from giving focus on what we want and giving that glory to God? You know, it's a time to put aside ourselves. It's a time to selflessly praise God for who he is. And let's just also use that time to reflect on perhaps what God's been saying to us. We're going to have time for uh, obviously some songs, but also for communion and prayer later if you would like it. But I think for now, let's just worship and let's give God the glory that he deserves.